Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity, entitled Virtual IBD Clinic, Diagnosis and Medical Treatment, is jointly provided by Postgraduate Institute for Medicine, the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation, and RMEI Medical Education, LLC. This activity is supported by educational grants from AbbV Incorporated, Celgene Corporation, a Bristol-Myers Squibb company, and Takeda Pharmaceuticals USA Incorporated. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Hello, I'm Dr. Anita Abdali, and I'm a gastroenterologist at The Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center, and also the medical director of The Ohio State University Inflammatory Bowel Disease Center. In this CME activity, I will be discussing the clinical case of a newly diagnosed IBD patient, as well as principles and guidelines for the diagnosis and medical management of inflammatory bowel disease. So here's a clinical case. Jack is a 23-year-old male college student with no past medical history who presents for evaluation of weight loss, abdominal cramps, and non-bloody diarrhea for three months. He also complains of mouth sores, joint pain, and anal pain with defecation. His symptoms started about three months prior to this visit. Originally, he was told by his primary care physician that he probably had irritable bowel syndrome. However, over the past month, his symptoms progressed, including a 30-pound weight loss. Jack's family history is significant for his mother with rheumatoid arthritis and his uncle with celiac disease. He denies a family history of inflammatory bowel disease. He's a college junior who denies smoking, alcohol, or other illicit drug use. He denies any recent travel, camping, or drinking well water. His physical exam is significant for the following. He's a thin male in no significant distress. Vital signs are stable with a blood pressure of 120 over 80, a pulse of 90, a respiratory rate of 18. His head and neck exam is unremarkable for the exception of several aseous ulcers in his buccal mucosa and gum line. His sclera are anecteric. His abdomen exam is tender to palpation in the mid-epigastric, left upper quadrant, and both lower quadrants. On perianal exam, there's severe rectal tenderness, large skin tags, large visible ulcer in the anal canal, no masses or hepatosplenomegaly. Given Jack's presentation, which of the following would not be part of an initial routine diagnostic testing? So this is a challenge question. A, labs including CBC, ESR, CRP, fecal calprotectin. B, ileocolonoscopy with biopsy. C, small bowel imaging with CT enterography. Or D, deep enteroscopy. The correct answer is D, deep enteroscopy. Jack's clinical presentation is consistent with Crohn's disease. In order to confirm the diagnosis, the initial workup should include a CBC, ESR, CRP levels, as well as a fecal calprotectin. An ileocolonoscopy with biopsies, small bowel imaging with either a CT enterography or MR enterography is indicated. A deep enteroscopy is not 
part of routine diagnostic testing in suspected cases of Crohn's disease. So let's go back to Jack's clinical presentation and let's look at his blood work. His blood work revealed an elevated CRP of four, an ESR at 97, and an elevated fecal calprotectin at 350. His stool tests are negative for C. difficile. His colonoscopy revealed perianal skin tags, multiple ulcers in the anus, rectum, and sigmoid, as well as descending colon. Biopsies revealed patchy, severe, chronic active colitis with non-necrotizing granuloma and staying negative for CMV. The CT interrography revealed thickened segments of the distal and terminal ileum and the entire colon. Based on the results of Jack's endoscopies, the biopsies, which showed deep ulcers in the colon with anal involvement and presence of granulomas, an elevated CRP level, calprotectin elevated as well, and ESR also elevated, and in the absence of infectious etiologies, his diagnosis is Crohn's ileocolitis. He has severe Crohn's disease and is likely to develop complications or require surgery unless early appropriate medical therapy is initiated for his aggressive disease phenotype. The treatment options for Jack include induction with steroids, an immune modulator such as thiopurine or methotrexate, biological therapy, or even a combination of biologics with an immune modulator. If Jack does not respond to the initial treatment, the options may include surgical intervention if he continues to have, for example, fibrostenotic disease. Now I will discuss some very important considerations in the diagnosis of IBD. When considering a diagnosis of IBD in Jack or any patient with gastrointestinal symptoms, it is most important to obtain a clear diagnosis, one that explains the patient's current symptoms, provides prognostic information, and makes a distinction in management decisions such that therapy chosen now affects both the short as well as the long-term outcomes. There is a need to differentiate disease activity, which takes into account how sick the patient is today or how is the patient doing at their initial presentation in the short term compared to disease severity, which includes prognostic factors, long-term assessment, and risk for disease progression. It's important to ask all patients when they initially present to help you make the clinical diagnosis of IBD a few questions. First of all, how did the symptoms start? What does the patient mean by diarrhea, abdominal pain, or bleeding? Could they quantify it? Always consider red flags such as nocturnal symptoms, weight loss, and anemia. It is important to ask about a family history of IBD or other gastrointestinal disorders, as well as extraintestinal manifestations, which should include the skin and the eyes. Always do a full and complete examination looking for abdominal masses or perianal disease. There are some clinical features that differ between ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. In ulcerative colitis, there's continuous inflammation involving the colon only. 
In Crohn's disease, there is patchy inflammation, and this inflammation could be anywhere from the mouth to the anus. The pathology in ulcerative colitis is superficial inflammation, whereas in Crohn's disease, the inflammation is full thickness. Fistulas and strictures are characteristic of Crohn's disease, and the risk of cancer is in both colon and small bowel. In ulcerative colitis, the risk of cancer is the colon alone. Extraintestinal manifestations can be seen in both ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. The differential diagnosis of IBD includes irritable bowel syndrome, or IBS, microscopic colitis, infectious colitis, such as C. difficile or CMV, drug-induced enterocolitis in the appropriate patient, a solitary rectal ulcer syndrome, diversion colitis or radiation colitis, again, in the appropriate patient, woman of childbearing age, you should consider endometriosis, malignancy, and diverticular disease should all be in your differential diagnosis. In refining the diagnosis in IBD, there are several studies that should be used to establish this. This includes an ileocolonoscopy, fecal calprotectin, which is often useful to make a distinction between IBS and IBD, an expert pathologist or a reliable pathologist to review your biopsies, evaluation of the small bowel with either a CT enterography or an MR enterography, or as needed, a wireless capsule endoscopy. For patients with perianal symptoms, a perianal disease on initial examination as well as examination under anesthesia is often necessary. And in the patient with recurrent small bowel obstructions, for example, sometimes even an exploratory laparotomy may be necessary, although this is rare. And other clues such as family history or even serologies may be useful in the appropriate patient. A colonoscopy and upper endoscopy are of the utmost importance in IBD. Indeed, the first colonoscopy is the most important and should include assessment of the ileum and colon, evaluation of the ileocecal valve, and biopsies of both normal and abnormal areas. An upper endoscopy is useful for identifying upper tract disease that could be suggestive of Crohn's disease. Here's an IBD diagnostic algorithm for the first presentation, for Jack's presentation. The labs should include a CBC, CRP, LFTs, albumin, and stool studies should be ordered first. We could also include an iron panel here for the appropriate patient. Upper and lower endoscopy with duodenal and ileal and colonic biopsies should be performed. If these are suggestive of Crohn's disease, staging should be done with small bowel imaging, either a CAT scan or an MR enterography, or even a small bowel follow-through. If the endoscopy is normal, small bowel imaging with the CT, MRI, or small bowel follow-through should be done. If that is normal, a capsule endoscopy should be performed. All should be done for the high-risk patient or the patient where there's a high predictive value or probability for Crohn's disease. 
This slide depicts the Mayo scoring system for the assessment of ulcerative colitis. Recall that here the inflammation is of the colon alone. The mucosal appearance at endoscopy is graded in a score of 0 to 3, with 0 being normal or inactive disease and 3 being severe disease. So here the Mayo score is used and could be used at the time of your colonoscopy. For Crohn's disease, this slide depicts the simple endoscopic score or SES. The values range from zero to three based on size of ulcers, ulcerated surface, affected surface, and presence of stenosis. This score is based on five segments, the ileum, the right colon, the transverse colon, the left colon, and the rectum. The diagnosis of IBD is dependent upon a careful history and physical examination in combination with the clinical, radiographic, endoscopic, and histologic findings described. Turning again back to our patient, Jack. So, given that Jack has moderate to severe Crohn's disease, which of the following is the most appropriate initial therapy? A, oral mesalamine, B, azathioprine, C, vetalizumab, or D, cyclosporin? The correct answer is C, vetalizumab. For patients with moderate to severe Crohn's disease and active inflammation, anti-integrin therapy with vetalizumab can be considered for induction of remission. Oral mesalamine, azathioprine, and cyclosporin should not be used for induction of remission in Crohn's disease. Now I will discuss some very important considerations in the medical management of IBD. There are several key goals of managing IBD, and this includes both for induction and maintenance of remission. We need to restore and maintain nutrition, achieve mucosal healing, minimize complications, enhance the quality of life for our patients, and avoid colectomy. We need to be able to select the optimal therapy in order to avoid the surgery but recognizing that sometimes we may not be able to avoid surgery in some patients. There are several considerations for sequential therapies, induction, and maintenance for ulcerative colitis. Therapy for ulcerative colitis is stepped up, so to speak, according to the severity at presentation or non-response at a prior step. For mild disease, aminosalicylates can be used for both induction and maintenance. For moderate ulcerative colitis, corticosteroids can be used for induction, and aminosalicylates or thiopurines can be used for maintenance. For moderate to severe disease, there are a variety of options for induction, including anti-TNF agents, cyclosporin in the appropriate patient, or tofacinib, which can be used for patients with moderate to severe ulcerative colitis who have had an inadequate response to or are intolerant of TNF blockers. However, it should not be combined with azathioprine or cyclosporin or used in combination with other biologics for ulcerative colitis. 
vetalizumab, which can be used for patients with moderate to severe ulcerative colitis who have had an inadequate response with, loss of response to, or are intolerant of TNF blockers or immune modulators, or they did not respond to or have become dependent on corticosteroids. Ustekinumab can also be used for induction and maintenance of therapy. For moderate to severe disease, the options for maintenance include anti-TNF agents, thiopurines, tofacitinib, vetalizumab, or ustekinumab. And of course, colectomy should be considered in circumstances where medical therapy is not working or in cases where there is a clear need for surgery. When considering the therapeutic approach for Crohn's disease patients, therapeutic selection should be based on disease phenotype, disease severity, and prognostic factors. If the patient is at a high risk for disease progression, early appropriate therapy with biologics is warranted in order to achieve mucosal healing and perhaps change the natural progression of their disease. Now I'd like to discuss the individual drug classes used to treat IBD patients, beginning with aminosalicylate or 5-ASA drugs. These are oral therapies, and aminosalicylate is first-line therapy for induction and maintenance of remission in mild to moderate ulcerative colitis. It is important to treat the release of medication to the site of active disease. For the colon, sulfasalazine or balsalazide or olsalazine for the terminal ileum, delayed release mesalamine for the duodenum, ileum, and colon, controlled release mesalamine formulations can be considered. The aminosalicylates are associated with a low incidence of serious side effects. The major ones are agranulocytosis, pancreatitis, and interstitial nephritis. The next drug class for IBD are corticosteroids. For patients with moderate to severe active ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease, oral steroids are usually effective and may be used alone or with an aminosalicylate for ulcerative colitis. For patients who do not respond to oral steroids, it may be necessary to administer steroids rectally or for severe and extensive disease intravenously. Controlled release budesonide is used for mild to moderate Crohn's disease that is confined to the ileum or the right colon. Budesonide is gut selective, so it has a better safety profile than traditional corticosteroids do, but it can cause headaches, respiratory infections, and nausea, along with other steroid-associated side effects. Steroids should not be given long-term for maintenance therapy because they're associated with a relatively high risk of serious adverse effects as listed below. These can involve nearly every major body system, including adrenal suppression, cataracts, glaucoma, cognitive impairment, psychosis, hypertension, serious infections, myopathy, osteoporosis, and pseudotumor cerebri. Some of these toxicities are insidious and or potentially irreversible, so steroid therapy requires careful monitoring. When prescribing steroids, you should always consider your next treatment step, 
In other words, steroids should be a bridge to what? What next? Now turning on to immune modulators. Azathioprine and 6-mercaptopurine are collectively known as thiopurine. These oral drugs can be used to maintain remission in ultracolitis and Crohn's disease of any severity. They have a slow onset of action, so they are often given with a steroid. Serious side effects include pancreatitis, allergy, bone marrow suppression, liver toxicity, serious infections, lymphoma, and non-melanomatous skin cancer. Methotrexate, given intramuscularly or subcutaneously or orally, is used to induce and maintain remission in Crohn's disease. Its serious side effects include bone marrow suppression, acute and chronic liver toxicity, serious infection, nephrotoxicity, and severe dermatologic reactions. It is teratogenic and it is absolutely contraindicated during pregnancy. Cyclosporin can be used intravenously in high doses as rescue treatment for acute, severe steroid refractory UC. None of these immune modulators are FDA-approved for treatment of ultracolitis or Crohn's disease. Turning now to anti-TNF therapies for moderate to severe IBD. For treatment of ultracolitis and Crohn's disease, the FDA has approved four anti-TNF drugs which have similar efficacy and safety profiles. Adalimumab and infliximab are approved for the treatment of Crohn's disease and ultracolitis. Sertolizumab pegol is approved for the treatment of Crohn's disease, and golimumab is approved for the treatment of ultracolitis. The delivery routes of these drugs differ. Infliximab must be injected intravenously, whereas adalimumab, golimumab, and sertolizumab pegol are given subcutaneously. There are some rare but serious side effects of anti-TNF therapies. All anti-TNF therapies approved for ultracolitis or Crohn's disease carries a black box warning for serious infection and malignancy. And this is to also remember melanomatous skin cancers as a risk. Use of anti-TNF agents may increase the risk of reactivation of hepatitis B virus in patients who carry the virus. The risk of skin cancer and psoriasis is also increased in patients who receive TNF antagonists. Patients receiving regular therapy with an anti-TNF agent may develop an immune response that can lead to allergic reactions and even a loss of response. Very rarely, a lupus-like syndrome may occur. Demyelinating disease has been seen in patients receiving TNF antagonists. Patients treated with an anti-TNF therapy have an increased risk of worsening congestive heart failure as well as new onset heart failure. Patients are also at increased risk of liver toxicity. Turning now to the Integrin receptor antagonists, natalizumab and vetolizumab. Natalizumab and vetolizumab are humanized monoclonal antibodies that target alpha-4 integrins and the alpha-4-beta-7 integrin, respectively. Vetolizumab appears to be gut-selective and does not seem to induce systemic immune suppression. Natalizumab is indicated for inducing and maintaining clinical response and remission in adult patients with moderate to severe active Crohn's disease and with evidence of inflammation who have had an inadequate response to 
or are unable to tolerate conventional Crohn's disease therapies and inhibitors of TNF antagonists. But I will say natalizumab is no longer not commonly used. And this is because vetalizumab is now available. Vetalizumab is indicated for adult patients with moderate to severe active ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease who have had an inadequate response with, loss of response to, or were intolerant to a TNF blocker or immune modulator, or had an inadequate response or intolerant or dependent on corticosteroids. Natalizumab carries a black box warning of PML, or progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy, which is a life-threatening condition that is caused by the JC virus. No cases of PML have been observed in clinical trials of vetalizumab, but an increased risk of PML cannot be ruled out. It is now possible to assess a patient's likelihood of PML by testing for the JC virus. But even so, patients on natalizumab or vetalizumab should be monitored closely. These drugs should not be combined with each other or with an anti-TNF agent, and natalizumab should not be combined with an immune modulator. Now turning to ustekinumab. Ustekinumab is an anti-P40 monoclonal antibody that inhibits binding of interleukin-12 and 23 to their respective receptor complexes. It is indicated for moderately to severe active Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. Some possible serious events include infection, tuberculosis, malignancies, non-infectious pneumonia, and one rare report of reverse posterior leukoencephalopathy, or also known as RPLS. This is not PML. RPLS is a rare and potentially fatal syndrome characterized by headache, confusion, and seizures. Now turning to the Janus kinase inhibitors. Tofacitinib is an oral small molecule inhibitor of JAK1, 2, and 3. It is approved for adults with moderate to severe ulcerative colitis who are intolerant or failed anti-TNF therapy. Other JAK kinase inhibitors are listed below, including filgotinib, upadacitinib, and others as listed. The final drug class that I would like to discuss are biosimilars. Biosimilars are a similar copy of an originator biologic therapy. There are no comparative studies in IBD, so the data have been extrapolated mostly from rheumatology studies, including bioequivalents to the originator biologic for approved biosimilars in the United States. And clinical response and efficacy have been confirmed in clinical trials in rheumatology. Preliminary data supports the interchangeability of biosimilars and originator anti-TNF therapies. However, more data is needed for switching and interchangeability is not currently FDA approved. Safety profiles are consistent with the originator biologic. There are several biosimilars for IBD as listed here, and each of these as described and listed are indicated for adult and pediatric Crohn's disease and ultracolitis patients as listed, and many other biosimilars are now available. So to summarize, 
Inflammatory bowel disease therapies include the five ASA agents, which are effective and safe for induction and maintenance of remission in patients with mild to moderate ultracolitis. Systemic and conventional corticosteroids are effective inductive agents in ultracolitis and Crohn's disease. They are not used for maintenance therapy because they can be associated with a range of serious side effects as discussed. The immune modulators most often used to treat ulcerative and Crohn's disease are azathioprine, 6-mercaptopurine, methotrexate, and cyclosporin in the appropriate patient. Anti-TNF agents, vedolizumab and ustekinumab are effective for induction and maintenance of remission in patients with moderate to severe IBD. The role of biosimilars needs further exploration Earlier use of biologics in Crohn's disease and possibly severe ulcerative colitis may improve outcomes for our patients. Surgery is not a failure of treatment. It is sometimes a necessary component of the treatment of both ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. Now I will discuss future directions for IBD prognostics and the evaluation of treatment targets. We have several risk stratification tools available or in development in the United States to assess risk in IBD patients. These include CDPATH. This tool uses clinical information and laboratory data to provide individualized risk profiles for Crohn's disease patients. It takes into consideration clinical information such as disease location, serologic data such as anti-Saccharomyces cerevisiae antibody, anti-flagellin or anti-CBR1, and perinuclear anti-neutrophil antibody, as well as genetic data including the NOT2 frameshift mutation SNP13. CDPATH provides a report that shows individualized three-year risk of serious complications including bowel strictures, internal penetrating disease, as well as non-perianal surgery, such as bowel resection or strictoplasty. Eligibility for the CDPATH tool includes patients with Crohn's disease aged 18 years or older who have not experienced a serious Crohn's disease complication, such as bowel surgery, internal penetrating disease, or non-perianal surgery, including prior bowel resection or strictoplasty. IBDX is another risk stratification tool. This tool uses a blood sample to assess for the presence of four antibodies, ASCA, ALCA, ACCA, and AMCA. The presence of two or more of these antibodies is associated with an increased risk for the development of complications of stricturing or penetrating complications or the need for surgical intervention. The Prometheus Crohn's prognostic tool uses a blood sample to analyze serologic markers, which includes anti-CBR1, anti-OMPC, DNA-sensitive Pianca, and three genetic markers, not two variants of SNPs 8, 12, 13, to provide an individualized probability of Crohn's disease progression over time. And last, the PredictSure IBD is another risk stratification tool. Of note, availability of this test in the United States is limited as of September 2021. 
This tool uses a blood sample to analyze expression of 17 genes to assess individualized risk of experiencing frequently relapsing inflammatory bowel disease. The tool's algorithm stratifies patients as either being high risk or low risk. The risk level can then be used to assess and assist in selecting appropriate treatment early in the disease course or to guide treatment strategies. Eligibility includes patients aged 16 years or older at any disease stage. When considering the evaluation of appropriate therapy in IBD patients, particularly anti-TNF therapy, it is important to remember that anti-TNF immunogenicity is common among those with inflammatory bowel disease. This can lead to loss of response and infusion reaction. Currently, we have a genetic test known as risk immune available to identify variant carriers of HLA-DQA105. The HLA-DQA105 allele is associated with increased immunogenicity and development of antibodies directed against anti-TNF therapies. There is a seven-fold increased risk of anti-infliximab antibodies in IBD patients with this allele. There's also a two-fold increased risk of anti-infliximab or anti-adalimumab antibodies in Crohn's disease patients with this allele. Risk immune can be used to assess for immunogenicity prior to therapy initiation and to then inform decisions regarding anti-TNF therapy level monitoring. It can be used to determine which patients may need or benefit from targeted combination therapy specifically among those with HLA-DQA105 variants. And it can help avoid combination therapy in those without variants who are less likely to develop anti-drug antibodies. Thiopurin methyltransferase, TPMT, and the Nudex hydrolase, or NUDT15, genotyping are genetic tests to predict the potential for toxicity to thiopurin drugs including 6-mercaptopurine and azathioprine. Integration of TPMT and NUDT15 testing in practice may allow for more accurate prediction of thiopurine-related toxicity risk and to guide those accordingly. In addition to the standard biomarkers, including CRP and fecal calprotectin, as well as direct endoscopic evaluation for mucosal and endoscopic healing, we have additional tools available to evaluate treatment targets in inflammatory bowel disease. The Monitor Crohn's Disease Test is a serum test to evaluate biomarkers of mucosal damage. It evaluates 13 biomarkers and six biologic pathways of mucosal healing and homeostasis. It provides an endoscopic healing index, EHI, score based on the 13 biomarkers and biologic pathways. This is based on an algorithm which calculates a score from 1 to 100 and provides a readout that includes green for endoscopic remission, orange for moving forward or away from a likelihood of endoscopically active disease, red for biology consistent with endoscopically active disease. 
The monitor Crohn's disease test can be used in clinical practice for the periodic assessment of endoscopic disease activity as an adjunct to enable reduced frequency of colonoscopy or in place of colonoscopy in patients who prefer not to undergo serial colonoscopy to evaluate treatment response. The ulcerative colitis response index is based on a serum test to evaluate biomarkers for the detection of mucosal healing after anti-TNF treatment. The biomarkers include neutrophil count, interleukin-37, CHI3L1, and C-reactive proteins. This index is currently under evaluation. I'd like to just make a few comments regarding the use of these prognostic and risk stratification tools in current clinical practice. I think that we need additional tests and more information and research to evaluate these tools. And in the meantime, what can we as clinicians say to our patients and share with our patients? Well, I think we need to advise them that we need to continue to appropriately utilize our current diagnostic tests and studies. This includes laboratory testing, fecal calprotectin as a biomarker, as well as our endoscopic evaluation with colonoscopy and cross-sectional imaging, such as an MRI or a CAT scan. All of these diagnostic tools and modalities allows us to evaluate risks and provides a, an appropriate discussion for disease course and the progression of disease for each individualized patient. I thank you for participating in the CME activity. Please do not forget to take the post-test and complete the evaluation to receive CME credit. Thank you. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is jointly provided by Postgraduate Institute for Medicine, the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation, and RMEI Medical Education, LLC. This activity is supported by educational grants from AbbVie Incorporated, Celgene Corporation, a Bristol-Myers Squibb company, and Takeda Pharmaceuticals USA Incorporated. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.